Here we are with Shanti Deva again. Are you prepared? Is your ego substantially fortified to be able to withstand this onslaught? Some of you don't look so confident. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's start with the um, merit field in front of us and all sentient beings around us. It's called the inner motivation. So it's uh, possible, it's important to recognize that we can change and that we are changing in every single moment. So instead of saying, this is my habit, this is... Uh, the way I've always been, and then kind of giving up on ourselves, not trying to uh, leave aside the afflictions and generate good qualities. We just uh, go along as we are now, seeing ourselves as some kind of permanent phenomena that cannot change. And that is totally opposite to the reality of our situation. Geshe Tafke has been teaching for many weeks now on dependent arising, emphasizing causal dependence. And we need to see ourselves that way. to recognize that from moment to moment we are different, we are changing, that there's nothing fixed about us. And since we are in the nature of change, in the nature of impermanence, we're changing all the time whether we want to or not, we might as well make that change something good. We might as well direct our minds towards changing so that we see things more accurately, so that our mind is more open and tolerant. And the more we do that, the more it's possible for all other sentient beings to fit into the scope of our mind. So instead of 
just thinking about I, me, my, and mine, and my family, my friends. The mind can really open more, change, and expand. And when we can greet the rest of the world with a good attitude, we too are much happier. And when our mind is happy, there's less fuel for anger in the mind. So our anger and bad moods decline. And then it becomes easier to generate compassion. And from compassion to generate bodhicitta. And so with that, let's listen to what Shandideva has to say today. Okay, so um, just before coming here, I was reading a letter from Al, one of the inmates that I correspond with. And he had written like a a short essay, um, just a page and a half, about equanimity and how he approaches equanimity. And he does it from the viewpoint of everybody has the Buddha nature. So if everybody has the Buddha nature, we're all equal in having that potential to become fully awakened. And so that means everybody is worthwhile. And it means that there's no, we can't discriminate uh, against other sentient beings, no matter you know, what their political views are, what shape or form their body is in, or whatever. Um, can you bring me the, the letter that I gave you? I think you left it out there. I want to read you a few things that he wrote, because uh, we've been going through equanimity, uh, or not equanimity, but equal, equalizing self and others. And so... Uh, There's just a few sentences in there that really hit me. Thank you. So you have to remember, this is from somebody who is in prison for life, whose every moment you think uh, you don't have freedom and that people tell you what to do. 
when you're in prison, you have very little power over your life. Everything is controlled by the prison. What time you eat, when you can walk somewhere, where you can go, everything is controlled. Okay. So... um he said, uh, in our early and developing practice, we tend to point out hyper-focus and define others by their shortcomings, worst moments, and weakest habits. Hmm? Okay. We, we, yeah, we, we want to put others down because if we put them down, then it means we're better. Hmm? We view certain individuals as unworthy of our time and incapable of rehabilitative change. Conversely, we see ourselves, our family, and friends as noteworthy and on track towards awakening. Yeah. As an alternative to viewing others as obstacles, we begin to see individuals as commendable uh, you know, or as worthy of our empathy, placing their innate goodness at the forefront in our interaction with them. Okay. When we have a steady practice of equanimity, we no longer view correctional officers or program staff as enemies. Okay. Imagine for a minute that your mind, that your life is governed by correctional officers and program staff. And that for you to walk from point A to point B, very often you're cuffed, sometimes shackled. Yeah. Not pleasant. With equanimity, we understand that officers and staff have the Buddha nature. In turn, they become deserving of our tolerance, our gentleness, and our empathy. With the right view, practice of equanimity, we no longer view gang members, drug addicts, the mentally afflicted, and those suffering from deep-seated anger or sexual issues as enemies, as less than or as people to criticize and judge. Yeah. That uh, really hit me because those are the people that Al is around all day. Yeah. He, he's not around people who, uh, you know, uh, who lived in a responsible way. Uh, who, you know, he's with, he's with people who have some pretty tough conditioning in this life and some quite harsh karma from previous lives. And uh, so he's not like he's around even, you know, mostly just kind of regular people. There are some regular people in prison, but... Uh, you know, there's also a lot of people who have mental problems, you know, and uh, who grew up in really outrageous circumstances as kids that no kid should have to undergo. And 
you know, gang members, drug addicts, mentally ill, those with deep-seated anger or sexual in, uh, issues, we don't see them as enemies, as less than, as people to criticize and judge, people who just, we say, they're worthless. Yeah. One of the reasons we say they're worthless is because we're afraid of them. Yeah, we're afraid of them. And people sometimes ask me, you know, aren't you afraid to go into prisons? Yeah. And no, I'm not. Um, I know that they're very happy to have a visitor. And I don't think they're going to harm me. Yeah. So I'm not afraid, but it, it's interesting. That's usually the first question people ask me. Yes, aren't you afraid? When I uh, came to live at the Abbey, uh, people were asking, aren't you afraid of walking in the forest? There's all the lions and tigers and bears, ho-ho. You know, aren't you afraid to walk in the forest? I said, no, I'm actually more afraid of the human beings in the city who, you know, sometimes are less controlled than the animals are. Okay. Um, and then his last paragraph, he said, I didn't read this from the beginning, I'm just spot reading, whether we are American, Scandinavian, Lakota, Hindu, Nigerian, Persian, Mestizo, or Tibetan, everyone deserves equanimity. Whether we are biped, six-legged, or contain eight or ten tentacles, <laughs> everyone has the potential for awakening. So I was sitting there picturing all these octopuses, you know? And it's like, yeah, they have a mind that's locked in that kind of body, but they still have the potential, maybe not in that life, but in another life. And so um, to train the mind to see other beings like that instead of looking at them and instantly starting to pick faults. Yeah, how they're different, how they're less than, and so on. Okay, so that's going to take us right into... Uh, this whole thing of equalizing and exchanging self and others, which is one of the uh, antidotes to this kind of uh, discrimination. But first, there's another question here. Okay. In addition to habituation, this body is mine because the eyes are connected to my visual consciousness and so forth. Okay, so this is the same question I remember asking Lama Yashi many years ago. I said, you know, if somebody hits me, if somebody hits this body, I feel it. Yeah, if I eat good food, I feel it. Somebody else doesn't. So, uh, you know, it, it's not just habituation. There's some inherent connection between this body and, and my, me. 
So how to overcome this view or thought as an obstacle to exchanging self and others? Well, it's actually, too, uh, habituation that we're so sensitive to the the particular sense sense faculties that are on this body. Yeah. Um, Because if we do the meditation of exchanging self with others, then we practice seeing ourselves as somebody else and looking at our old self and looking at other beings. And everything looks quite different when we put ourselves in somebody else's shoes. Yeah. So we hear that uh, expression a lot ever since we were kids about, you know, just put yourself in their shoes. Okay, did you hear that when you were kids? I heard that a lot. Um, yeah. Uh, which we hardly ever do. <laughs> yeah. And as a result, we don't always understand people very well. But if we try and switch like that, then it's easier to become uh, familiar with somebody else's viewpoint on life. And when that happens, wow, you know, we can see things very differently. I mean, just even imagining being locked up with your whole life um, completely organized by others and controlled by others and just thinking of what that might be like. Yeah, I mean, that that we can think of. And, you know, and we think people here are bossy. You think you come here and you have no freedom. My goodness. Okay. So let's come back to the text. When um, verse ninety, just as a matter of review, is where we start equalizing uh, self and others, and verse one thirteen is when we start the exchanging self and others. Okay, so let's just read those uh, few verses until we get to uh, one thirteen. 115, which is how to actually exchange self and others. Okay, so 113, having seen the mistakes and cherishing myself. Oh, what mistakes! I cherish myself and that's how I'm happy. Yeah. Do you see how it, everything Shanti Deva says, one part of your mind says, oh, yeah. That's, yeah, having seen the mistakes in cherishing others and the ocean of good in cherishing others. Uh, I mean, th- having seen the mistakes in cherishing myself and the ocean of good in cherishing others, I shall completely reject all selfishness and accustom myself to accepting others. Yeah, so one part of our mind says, yeah, we've just gone through the previous eight chapters and 113 verses, and what he's saying is true. And another part of ourselves says, yes, but, you know, having seen the mistakes of cherishing others, no way, there's benefit, I mean, having seen the mistakes in cherishing myself, 
huh, that's good. I get so many benefits. So what we see here is we can follow his reasoning along and come to the right conclusion. But the next moment, we're back in looking things in our own way and thinking about me, I, my, and mine. Okay. So this is going to happen. Don't, you're not failing in doing the meditation. Yeah. When the next moment your mind goes back to cherishing yourself. Yeah. Don't see it as a failure. What you're doing is in the process of reconditioning your mind to think in another way. And that's going to take time. Okay. So if you start judging yourself as I'm a failure, then you're creating more self-centered obstacles. Hmm? Okay, 114. In the same way as the hands and so forth are regarded as limbs of the body, likewise, why are embodied creatures not regarded as limbs of life? That's really true, isn't it? Yeah. We're all the same. We're, you know, the hand help, helps the foot. It's no big trip. Why do we make a big trip whenever we do a, even a small action for others? Um, okay, 115. Here we're moving into how to exchange self and others. Through acquaintance with the thought, with the thought of I, arisen towards this impersonal body. So, in a similar way, why should it not arise towards other living beings? Okay, through the acquaintance, though, uh, through acquaintance with the thought of I, that has arisen towards this impersonal body. The key word here is impersonal. This question didn't see the body as impersonal. This saw the, the, the body as mine. When we say impersonal body, do you like that? No! My body is mine. Nothing is impersonal. Everything revolves around me. Yeah. Even my mind is impersonal. What? How can my mind be impersonal? My mind is my thoughts and my ideas and my creativity and all my good qualities and what I have to offer the world. How can you say it's impersonal? It is me. Yeah. And nobody fully appreciates my mind and what I have to offer the world. Right? Yeah? I can do so much if they only gave me a chance. Okay? So we, you know, we, the body is impersonal. Even our mind 
There is nothing about our mind or our body that is inherently I or me or my or mine. It's just a body. It's just a mind. You know, and that's when the question starts coming. What does it mean to be a person, to say a person? Yeah. Because when I say I am a person, it's not just something that is merely designated in dependence upon the five aggregates. I don't, when I say I, I don't say, I don't think mere designation independence on the five aggregates. Yeah. When I say I, I mean I, me, I am not merely designated, I am here. Yeah, there's me somehow inside here, I don't know where, but it's affiliated with the body even though I can't find it. And it's affiliated with my mind even though I can't find it there. But there's still something that is an individual special person that is me. What do you think? Hmm? Does it feel like that? Yeah. But when we ask, what is personal about this body? Well, then we say, oh, well, the eyes are connected with my visual consciousness. So the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, tactile cessation in the body, all of this, you know, it's not impersonal. This is connected to me because I feel the sensations from it. Yeah. And how people look at me depends on what this body looks like. If it's a young body, they look at me one way. If it's an old body, they look at me another way. Okay, so this you know, our feeling is that this this body is me, yeah, and the same way with our mind, yeah, our mind is me, yeah, especially all my creative ideas, yeah, all my expertise at doing this or doing that, whatever we are talented in. Yeah. There used to be somebody here who is excellent with building shelves, and we all praised her, you know, because you need shelves. She built, she could arrange things. He'd come in your office and clean it all up and make shelves and put everything nice, you know. And it's like, that is who she is, you know. Her special gift to the world, the ability to rearrange your office, whether you want it or not, so you better want it. 
and, you know, and build shelves. I can't build shelves like she builds shelves. Yeah, really, so much better than me. But I have other qualities that are better than the ability to organize offices and build shelves. Yeah. I know how to correct everybody when they make mistakes. <laughs> yeah, nobody else has that talent. They can't see things that are erroneous and correct them. They just let it slide. That's why the world is such a mess. <laughs> so, okay, so, uh, you know, to see it, what this word impersonal, an impersonal body, yeah, when you first read it, I don't know about you, it's like, what? Impersonal body? Impersonal mind? Impersonal talents? Impersonal knowledge? Impersonal excellence? <laughs> yeah. Impersonal mess ups? Yeah, we don't see any of that as impersonal, do we? But that's why that that word is important there. To sit on your cushion and think this body is impersonal. Yeah. I could have gotten anybody. Didn't have to be this one. And this body. There's nothing inherently mine about it. The sperm and egg came from mom and dad. Yeah, I grew because of all the food the farmers provided. And when I die, this body is going to belong to the worms. It's n not going to be my body anymore. It's going to be the worm's body. It's going to be their lunch. Yum, yum. Yum, yum. Mm. So 115 was talking about how to exchange self with others, and that's where we stopped last time. So 116, when I work in this way for the sake of others, I should not let conceit or the feeling that I am wonderful arise. Why not? Why not? Yeah. If I don't think I'm wonderful, then I think I'm just worthless. And you said thinking I'm worthless is a hindrance, so I correct it by thinking I'm wonderful. Very logical, isn't it? Yeah. I should not let conceit or the feeling that I am wonderful arise. It is just like feeding myself. I hope for nothing in return. So when we uh, do things for ourselves, yeah. Did, did you congratulate yourself for eating breakfast this morning? Did you say, oh, you are so wonderful? You eat breakfast in the most fantastic way. 
better than anybody else in the world eats breakfast. Yeah? Did you congratulate yourself? Did you congratulate yourself for getting out of bed? For getting dressed? (laughs) You did? Okay. (laughs) Okay, yeah. I'm so good I got out of bed this morning. (sighs) Wonderful. Yeah. I need an award for that. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, let's use a different example. (laughs) Yeah, did you uh, congratulate yourself for getting dressed this morning? No, you just do it. It's not a big deal. Yeah, why do we not make a big deal out of getting dressed? But we do make a big deal out of folding somebody else's laundry. Yeah? It's just because the mind has labeled, you know, this as mine and that as others. And then, uh, you know, imputed different value, different worth on those things, depending upon whether I saw them as mine or others. So you see how this is all just made up by our mind? Yeah, it's all just imputed by our mind. But once we impute I and others, mine and others, we forget that we were the one who imputed it. And we think that being mine, being others, comes from the side of the object. And if it comes from the side of the object... Yeah, then it's an objective reality, and there's no way we can question it. And there's no way it can change. That's what it intrinsically, inherently is. But if we back up and see, wait a minute, I was the one who gave the designation. Yeah? But, okay, so that at that moment, you are a prasangika. But in the next moment, you say, yes, I did impute, but there is also something from the side of the object. I can't just impute anything as anything. You know, if I imputed their clothes as mine and my clothes as theirs, And so I took their laundry back, you know, that wouldn't do. You know, they would get really upset. So there's something in their laundry that makes it theirs, not mine. Yeah. So what is it in their laundry that makes it theirs? Well, before it's washed, we could say the smell. Yeah, but after it's washed, we can't see the smell. What in their laundry is mine? There's some, or what in the laundry is theirs? Yeah, and if our laundry gets mixed up and I take it, it becomes mine and they they forget about it. 
So how, what is this mine that that piece of cloth gained? And what is the theirs that that piece of cloth lost? Yeah, there must be something in the object that makes it what it is. And you become a Svatantraka. <laughs> you don't want to be a Svatantraka. <laughs> you want to be the best. Yeah. So then you decide, you know, whatever you think is best. I'm a Vibhasaka. No, you don't want to be a Vibhasaka. Yeah, they're lower. But Vivasaka kind of feels kind of comfortable, doesn't it? Something about Vivasaka feels comfortable. Yeah. So you see how even in terms of our philosophical view, we're like yo-yos. Yeah. Okay. So I should not let conceit or the feeling that I am wonderful arise. Oh. Do I have to give that up? Yeah. It is just like feeding myself. I hope for nothing in return. Okay. But I made my bed this morning. Don't I get congratulated for that? And I showed up for dishes because I was on the rota. Don't I get some praise for that? Yeah. And I even took some of the gravel off the road, off the forest and put it on the road. That was heavy work. Oh my goodness. I'm exhausted. Don't I get some recognition for moving at least a container of gravel that's this big? Okay. It's interesting, isn't it? Everything we do we think is somehow special. Um, When you were talking about um, we're just imputing a person on this body, it made me think about how with the stuffed toys, we're imputing an identity on them. And so I thought it was a very skillful means for you to have us like engage in this process because maybe we could get some insight into how we do it to ourselves. Yeah. Because it's kind of the... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We impute a personality on each one of our our Zoom members who are going to take over the Abbey. (laughs) They're growing at a faster rate than the monastics are. (laughs) Although the monastics still outnumber the stuffed animals... But it's true, we, you know, impute personalities on them. Mm-hmm. And then we can act out those personalities. So you can impute, if you're skillful, you impute a different personality on the stuffed animal and try acting like that. Yeah? Sometimes we impute our own personality 
on it. And so we're in a bad mood. Then the stuffed animal's also in a bad mood. Like yesterday. Yeah? Yeah? But if we're in a different mood or if we can imagine having different qualities, then we can speak as the stuffed animal from a different viewpoint. Yeah? And Bodhi Bug can say to, to who? Maybe Yogi Bear. How does it feel when I bite you? Yeah? And then maybe Bodhi Bug can impute I on Yogi Bear, and then Yogi Bear imputes I on Bodhi Bug. Yeah? Yeah? And then Yogi Bear feels, what's, what is it like? You're so hungry, and all you're trying to do is get some food, and everybody swats you. Yeah? The suffering of a bug. Yeah. And, and then um, Bodhi Bug, the, the, yeah, uh, is now Yogi Bear and feels, you know, what it feels like to have bugs around you all the time. Yeah. Trying to bite you. Doesn't like that. But the bugs that Yogi Bear likes to eat, those are fine. Yeah, because bears eat bugs, you know, in the in the tree stumps and so. Okay, so you switch. So that's exactly what we're getting into here. Okay. Something that I've been wondering about, about imputation is, um, does that mean that the person is permanent? Like, how does the imputation work? Often we would say, it sounds like a conceptual mind, so then is it something permanent? Does it change? How come that the person is changing if it's imputed? I don't quite understand your question. The, the, are you saying because concepts are seen as permanent, mm -hmm. therefore what you impute is is permanent? The concept, that's just how they say that, that um, you know, that conceptual appearance is permanent. That's a certain philosophical view. Not everybody agrees with that. Okay, but that doesn't mean that the object that's imputed is permanent. It just means that conceptual appearance is. There's a difference between the conceptual appearance and the actual object. There's a, there's a, a difference between the name Karen and the person Karen. Okay. Make sense? They, you're saying that there is an actual object. There, there, there is an object, but it's not an inherently existent one. Yeah. If there were no object, then there's no basis for you to impute anything on. You, I mean, people impute lots of things that don't exist, but that doesn't make those things exist. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, what's very interesting about what's going on in the country now. 
in terms of uh, one particular political party, which is developing incredible skill at imputing things that don't exist. Yeah, and that then people believe exist. Yeah, so it's it's the story of the emperor without any clothes. Yeah, that story that we heard, you know, as kids, it's actually quite profound. Yeah, when you think about it, it's a very profound story. Okay, one seventeen. Therefore, just as I protect myself from unpleasant things, however slight, in the same way I should habituate myself to have a compassionate and caring mind towards others. Okay. So think about how you protect yourself from unpleasant things, however slight. Yeah. Any small, tiny little itch, any little pain in our knee, got to move. Yeah. Any small moment of feeling tired, I need to take a nap. Yeah. Any feeling of being displeased because somebody didn't say good morning, that's verging on national catastrophe. Okay? So I protect my things, myself, from unpleasant things, however slight. Yeah. And that's through habit. A lot of that's through habit. And I'm, I'm sure, um, Miriam, as a mom, you notice that, that when one of your children falls down, if you just keep on going, the child usually stands up and keeps on going. If you turn around and go, Oh, Lucy, you fell down. Are you hurt? Oh, make bad on the stone you tripped over. You should never trip here. Let me kiss it and make it feel better. Then Lucy's going to scream her head off. Yeah. Because that's the message she was getting that she should do. So even, you know, whether we feel pain or pleasure or neutral feeling, it depends on how we're conditioned by the people around us. If people make a big deal about it, oh, yeah, I guess I must feel pain. I must feel scared. If people don't make a big deal about it, we don't either. Yeah? I watch this so much. Watch little kids, yeah, how when they fall down or something unexpected happens, they always look to mom and dad to find out how they should react. Unless it really hurts, then they really cry. But so often, it's, am I supposed to cry now? Is this something painful? It's so interesting. So we, that's how we develop that familiarity. Yeah. Same thing with uh, when people say certain words to us. If we were conditioned when we're little to feel insulted, yeah, or to feel 
put down when people say um, certain words to us, then every time we hear that word, that's how we react. Yeah? If we weren't conditioned that way, then we don't react that way. It's really, it's very interesting. Yeah? And so to really look and, you know, how was I conditioned? Yeah? And then you see that a lot of what you believe aren't your ideas. Oh, no. Really? You mean they're somebody else's ideas? Well, yeah, we all went through the educational system, didn't we? And we learned the knowledge of those came, who came before us. Some of the knowledge. We also learned some of their misconceptions. Yeah? And now they're revising the uh, history books again. So, so history is going to change, and children are going to learn something else. And so it's going to be very interesting when those children talk to their parents and they're, they're talking about a certain thing, but they're wondering, wait, no, 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 you didn't, you didn't really live through that because that didn't happen. Yeah, slavery didn't happen. Yeah. Or, wait, why are you complaining about slavery? All the slaves were so happy to be slaves. Yeah, when you see Dixie, you sing Dixie. Dixie is, they say, is a song from a, uh, a slave who was sent elsewhere than their owner and longing for the plantation where they lived and their master. Yeah? That's what some people say about that song. And other people look at that song and say, you know, very definitely racist. It's amazing. So, you know, we have to really check what we learned and what is actually true. Also, because human knowledge changes all the time. I remember at a certain time, in the past, what was it? Um, butter was bad for you, and you should eat margarine instead of butter because butter had too much fat, it blocked your arteries, you shouldn't eat it. Everybody should have margarine. Yeah? So some people remember that, you know, back in the good old days. And then a few years later, it was, oh, no, margarine is bad. You know, it has all this artificial stuff in it and the wrong kind of fat. You should eat butter. So human knowledge changes. What you learn changes. Yeah. Now, can you change your mind from eating margarine to eating butter? Well, maybe, but you wonder if they're going to go back to finding margarine better than butter later on. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember when we shouldn't eat many eggs? Eggs were bad for you. Now eggs are good for you. 
Hmm? Yeah. So who's re- who, which one is true? Yeah. And so, you know, we try and accept what the experts say, but the experts sometimes can't even agree. Or they agree, and then a few years later, they do something different, with a different experiment or different kind of analysis, and the conclusion changes. What? Paid. Paid? They're paid. Pay. Oh, they're paid. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. If you receive funding from a particular company, your research better affirm that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So just as I protect myself from unpleasant things, however slight, which I don't really even need to protect myself from, they're not such big things. In the same way, I should habituate myself to have a compassionate and caring mind towards others. This doesn't mean that we flutter around others, you know, and, oh, there's a bug that landed on you. You know, and you project your your own fear on of bugs on on the other people, and you become a bug, flittering around them, driving them crazy. <laughs> okay, it doesn't mean that, but you know, looking and seeing people's uh, reality, you know, and taking it seriously. Hmm? 118, it is out of his great compassion that the Lord Avalokiteshvara has blessed his name to dispel the nervousness of being among other people. Uh Uh-oh, their nervousness. That's from the Gandavyuha Sutra. uh, That's the same sutra that the King of Persia is from. By recollecting my name three times, may the fear of being embarrassed among people be dispelled. That was one of Avalokiteshvara's um, uh, sincere uh, aspirations, you know, that just blessing his name so that people hearing the name reminds you, oh, I don't know you to feel nervous and embarrassed. Okay, so that's an example here of how Avalokiteshvara cares for others as if they were himself, you know. Maybe he felt nervous and embarrassed when he was an ordinary being. I mean, going into a room with all those heads and all those arms, can you imagine how much people stared at you? Yeah. Or whatever it was. Yeah. Okay, one nineteen. Hmm. I should not turn away from what is difficult. Shanti Deva said that. If I say it to you. <laughs> Oh, 
how would I should turn away? It's too difficult. It's too hard. I may fall flat on my face. Then everybody will laugh at me. Then I'll sink into the ground. Then I'll have to sit there and go, Avalokiteshvara, Avalokiteshvara. I feel so nervous. I feel so embarrassed. Please bless me. Okay. I should not turn away from what is difficult. For by the power of familiarity... I may be made unhappy even when someone whose name once frightened me is not around. Okay, this is a very interesting example. So, you had a bad experience with somebody. Yeah, let's say, uh, I don't know, even when you were a kid, you know, some bully punched you or made fun of you or ridiculed you. And you have, you know, it's like, I do not like that person. Yeah. Or you can even have it towards one, one of your parents. Yeah. It's like, oh, you know, too much. Okay. If So if we are so sensitive like that and hold such a really strong grudge, against somebody because of something that happened many years ago, then even somebody else is talking about that person and just saying, oh, I saw Joe last week. All they need to say is, oh, I saw Joe last week. And you go, oh, I can't stand Joe you know, Joe isn't even there. He's not doing anything to you. But once you hear his name, you think he's the same person as when you were seven years old and he threw sand in your eyes in the playground. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? He's now 47 or maybe 57. But in your mind... He has not changed beyond being seven. And there's no other meaning to his life besides throwing sand. That's the meaning of his whole life. Yeah? And so you react that way, even you just hear his name. So, okay, so that's what happens when we turn away from what is difficult, being what is difficult, opening our mind and, you know, seeing what other situation actually is. If we don't do that, then by the power of just familiarizing our, ourself with that thought, because every time we remember Joe, we get mad at him. Yeah. Then even somebody says, Joe, yeah, stimulus response, we're unhappy, we're mad. Joe's nowhere here. He's not doing to anything to us now. Yeah. Okay. So this is, is really a call for us to unstick our minds and unstick the uh, conceptions we have of other people. Yeah. When I was reading Al's uh, letter, and I was, uh, you know, I read that phrase where he said, with the right view, 
and the practice of equanimity, we no longer view gang members, drug addicts, and the mentally afflicted, and those suffering from deep-seated anger or sexual issues as enemies, as less than, as people to criticize and judge. When I say each word, when I say gang members, do you have a mental image of what a gang member looks like? Yeah, comes like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Does every gang member look like that? Does every person who looks like that, are they a gang member? No. But we, that, the thing that happens when we project that is we bring all those people who look that way into one group. And then the people who don't look that way are in another group. So they may have done the actions of a gang member, but because they look different, so our justice system in this country is kind of an injustice system. Yeah. And it would be very, very interesting, I think, if trials were conducted without seeing the person who was on trial. Yeah. And what would the jury decide if they didn't see the person and hear the voice? Yeah. Or if the person looked entirely different and their voice sounded different? Yeah, would the jury decide differently? I bet in a lot of cases they would. Mm-hmm. They often do just that when somebody tries out for a symphony. Ah, yeah, right. When when people try out to play an instrument in a symphony, symphony, in an orchestra, <laughs> they sit behind a curtain and play because the judges, you know, can't see what they look like and have to just evaluate strictly on the basis of how they played, not on what they look like. Yeah. I was thinking on the opposite um, example in El Salvador, what mm -hmm. they're doing with uh, people there. If you have a tattoo, that means you're a gangster. So you go to jail and you're not allowed to eat. You're not allowed to see your family. You're not allowed to have a trial just because you resemble someone from a gang. Yeah. Having a tattoo is sufficient. Yeah. Yeah. In the, in the same way that sometimes, I mean, they've done studies when if, uh, you send in job applications, the same application, but the name is different. And based on the name, people will discriminate. Yeah. Whether you get the job or don't get the job or how much you get paid. Yeah. If it's a man, you get paid this amount. If it's a woman, you get paid less. It's the same job, the same application, not the same treatment, you know. And so here we're going back to how this conceptual mind operates and how we get so stuck. There, there are 
there are some good qualities of the conceptual mind. That's what enables us to understand the teachings. But there's also a lot of faults with the conceptual mind because we get, we think that the concept is the object. And, and then our mind becomes very inflexible. Yeah, no matter how much information we are presented with, the mind does not change. Yeah. And that happens because of the sense data, the pleasant, unpleasant, and immediately taking that and translating it. So over the course of our lives, we're just building constructs on top of a color and shape, a sound wave, a mm -hmm. tactile sensation. Yeah. So then when I looked at this during the retreat to see this whole part about how that's not personal. Yeah. That the, that the mind is doing what we're, is cognizing the object, mm -hmm. having a feeling, and then there's all this imputation. Yeah. I'm just blown away by how much right. I make a big something out of a color and shape. Yeah. And, and this is actually the same thing, uh, you know, when you're doing nonviolent communication and you're trying to describe what actually happened in the situation. Yeah, and and then you realize what happened in the situation is very different than what the actual data was. And here I remember so clearly there was uh, one person who was here and her son was getting married uh, to a woman in, from a different ethnic group and they were having a, an engagement party at her parents' house. And uh, she went there. Of course, she didn't know anybody. Rang the doorbell. Somebody let let her in. Um, nobody took her around and introduced her to people. She saw her future daughter-in-law somewhere talking to somebody. You know, her and her son's fiance did not come up and greet her and say welcome and take her around and introduce her. You know, but just kept talking to whoever she was talking to. And our friend, yeah, got furious. It's like, she is so rude. Doesn't she know I don't know anybody? She's marrying my son, my pride and joy. She should be nice to me because I gave birth to him. Why isn't she paying me any attention? Why is she letting me sit here and look like a jerk just standing around because I don't know anybody and can't talk to anybody? She was so angry. You remember? Yeah. Well, when you're hurt, you get angry. Yeah. So, but when uh, we did this thing with her, you know, or she, or she did it, I can't remember. But what she got to was, you know, what exactly happened? Yeah. Because her whole thing of the situation was, you know, and she was going to hold it against this, her son's fiancé forever and ever and ever and ever. And then she said, oh, what actually happened? I rang the doorbell. I walked in the room. She was talking to somebody, and she continued talking. That's all. Just like many other people in the room who were talking to somebody and continued talking when I walked in the room. 
And then it was like, you know, you could see all this went, oh, she got totally deflated, yeah, because all of her, uh, you know, anger was, she thought, was her own invention. But when we do that, it is not our invention. <laughs> Actually, those people are rude, they're inconsiderate, they're discriminating against me. You know, how dare they treat me like that? And because they are so rude and obnoxious, I'm keeping a distance from them. My son can just go ahead and marry that woman. I don't care. I'm never going to their house until she has a baby. Then I'll take the baby. Because <laughs> I want a grandchild. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is our mind, isn't it? So it's very interesting in your practice. Look at who you are holding things against because of things that happened many years ago. Yeah. And look at things that happen now that you instantly judge as they're not paying any attention to me. They must think that I'm not worthwhile. They think other people are better than me. <laughs> yeah? So, just before you ask this. So, the whole point of all of this is to see everybody as equal to ourselves, you know, to really get that. We have to clear away all this other junk. Yeah, because if we don't clear it away, uh, then we just perpetually see people according to our old, old, old view of them. Mm-hmm. Another layer to this is it doesn't even have to be the person that caused me harm. It just has to be someone that sounds like them or brings up a story. It doesn't even have to be the same person, and yeah. I can still create a whole story. Yeah, yeah. You just see somebody who looks like that person, and automatically it's like, oh, I better be careful. They look like so-and-so, so they're going to act like so-and-so. Or they have the same name as so-and-so, you know. Oh, then I better really be careful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, anybody who puts their hands on their hips, you know, this means... Yeah, what does it mean to put your hand on your hip? Power? Anger, aggression. What else? Huh? <laughs> You're dancing, trying to attract somebody. <laughs> yeah. So just that gesture. Yeah. You, now you know why, you know, in the Vinaya, monastics are not supposed to put their hands on their hip. Because that's the, you know, what people project. But you can also put your hands on your head because your back hurts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we don't give somebody 
that benefit of the doubt that their back hurts, we go immediately, yeah. It's very interesting, especially with men. Yeah, I've noticed this more with men than with women. But when men uh, all talk to each other, and especially when they first meet, they're both standing with their legs apart and their arms like this. Yeah, guys, is this... Yeah, do you, do you even see this in yourself? Yeah, you do? Yeah, there's this um, automatically. They're standing like that. Yeah, because they got to figure out who's alpha male, you know, and who's going to go chase the giraffes. And the, and the, <laughs> yeah, because you want to be the alpha tiger. Oh, it's very interesting to watch that, you know. And then... You know, how when different people meet each other, you know, if people are are straight, when a man meets a woman, how they hold their body. Or if you're gay, how the two people hold their body, you know, and what it, it, uh, what people impute about that kind of gesture. Yeah. And so we think we know exactly who everybody is. There is sometimes, you know, information you gather from people's body language. You know, when I saw Donnie, the picture of Donnie getting arraigned when he was sitting at the table with his his, uh, lawyers, I mean, he looked miserable. Yeah, he looked miserable, but there was also a tinge of contempt. Yeah, but... Actually, there was just a person sitting there looking across the room. Okay? I imputed that. Maybe some of it was coming from him. I think in that situation, knowing his behavior, maybe what I imputed had some truth in it. Yeah. But, you know, maybe not. He often claps when, uh, what does he clap at? He claps at things that I would never clap at. I can't identify. Have you, anybody else seen that? Identified what it is. In rallies, you know, he'll, he, oh, he insults somebody. And then when the crowd is jeering, he claps. Yeah. So you have to, but when I clap, I hope I hope you don't think that I'm jeering. <laughs> See, so part of our problem too is you de- is we develop one meaning for a particular gesture, and then we impute it on everybody that's there, whether that's how they actually feel or not. Yeah, you know that thing. You. Know, you they had that look on their face. So I know what's going on. Well, sometimes, yeah, you can gain you gain information from people's body language, yeah, or tone of voice or whatever. But sometimes it's not the same. A good example. Okay. When um <laughs> when young husbands men 
uh, he was the leader of the Br British uh, troops that marked marched into Lhasa in, was it 1906 or 1908, sometime like that. So the British were invading Tibet, yeah. Uh, the Dalai Lama escaped to, to China at that point. Um, so when the young husbandsman and his troops were marching into Lhasa, uh, the people, the, the Tibetans were around, and w watching, and they were clapping. Okay? So young husbandmen said, oh, they're so glad we British trips, troops are there. You know, because the, the Brits, they're the conquerors, and they're the big colonialists. And, you know, oh, they, they really want us here. They're so glad we're here. In Tibetan culture, you clap to scare away the spirits. So they weren't clapping because they were glad to see the British. They were clapping to, to scare away the evil spirits. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, things like this about mannerisms, we impute and then we, yeah. Uh, also, in Tibetan culture, it's not so much now, but especially when I first ordained. Uh, but, but now, too, when you blow your nose, you go like this. And then you blow your nose, and then you uncover your head. Yeah. Forget masks. You just, you know, stick your head under your robe. Okay? So when Inji's come along, and we just pull out a tissue and blow, it's like, Oh, these people are so rude. <laughs> yeah. And when Tibetans blow their nose, the Inches look and say, what are they doing? <laughs> yeah. Does the gesture, does either gesture in and of itself have a special meaning? No. If it did everybody would feel the same way. Yeah. And so we would all... <laughs> Let me tell you, for years I did that. You know, when, when at teachings, and I had allergies, so my nose was always running. Half of the teaching I was under my robe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so I th uh, more questions or comments? Like, uh, I feel like um, what you've described with like us imputing a lot of meaning into these sort of like symbols and mannerisms that we experience when communicating with other people, it seems like it's all there is sometimes when you look at someone else, where like there's uh, like like the mind is very it feels very instinctive where it's like they'll make a face and then you'll have a snap judgment on that they'll move their arm in a certain way and then there's a snap judgment for that so like how do you like create this space in the mind to sort of be able to sort of step back from that yeah. or at least become more aware of it yeah i think it's kind of refers to what venerable semke was saying yeah we see something or we hear something and we 
because of prior habituation and training, we get maybe a happy feeling or an unpleasant ha feeling from it, and then we make a judgment. And this is all stuff that's conditioned because of what we experienced in the past. So one of the things that helps us, you know, change that is being paying more attention to uh, to these kinds of things and to recognize what's going on. Oh, that person has their hands like this. Yeah. Oh, I see that. Yeah, I impute that that's how, you know, that they're trying to do a power trip on me because uh, whenever I was little, when my parents were mad, they put their hands on their hip. So that person is trying to boss me around. And then this unpleasant feeling comes, and then, you, you know, you really want to stay away from that person. Okay, so if you become aware of that whole process... You know, you see it, an unpleasant feeling, judgment, imputation, you know. Um, then that's how you can start to break it. Yeah, because you question it. It's like, oh, look what I did. Just like our friend who got so upset when her daughter, her future daughter-in-law didn't stand up and welcome her. Okay, so if when you become aware of that, then you begin to see, oh, this is my habit. This is coming from my mind, my imputation. There's nothing in the object that has that. Yeah. Like I said, there are some times where maybe there is some quality because you're living in a certain culture where a certain gesture means a certain thing. Okay, But it doesn't... That gesture does not inherently mean that thing. And some people from that culture may not use that gesture, or they may use it, and it may mean something difficult, different. So we shouldn't put everybody together in a group. In uh, North India, if you nod your head, it means yes. In South India, it means no. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I realize that. And, you know, you ask a question, and then there's yeah. this. Yeah? And this this kind of means yes, doesn't it? Yeah, in South India more so. In, in North India, it could be no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh-huh. Oh, another example that just came to mind was a friend who's diagnosed autistic said that um, there's studies that show uh, there's kind of like this culture with autistic people when they're communicating. Mm -hmm. It's like they get each other. Mm -hmm. But between a neurotypical and an autistic, there's lots more like, misunderstanding, miscommunication, mm -hmm. yeah. offense even. Yeah. 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 And it's also interesting, once you get the label of autistic or neurodivergent or whatever it is, then it becomes an identity. Yeah. This is who I am. Don't other people realize this about me? And yet, people who are autistic have many different behaviors. Yeah. So, yeah, so very, 
interesting, you know, because now it seems to me, I mean, the, compared to when I was a kid to now, many more people have mental problems because there's many more. What's the book called? The, DSM. D, DSM. There's many more um, categories now of of different things. So then people have different, you know, labels and different identities, and it really influences them. There was one uh, family that came here, and the mother had everybody in the family diagnosed. She wasn't a therapist or anything, but, you know, she di diagnosed. But, uh, but I wonder sometimes when... For some people, when they have a diagnosis, it's relief because, oh, people now know what the problem was. For other people, when they get a diagnosis, it puts them in a box and confines them. So interesting, isn't it, how people, people some people say, Shoo. some people go, oh, no, I'm that. Yeah. Okay, so we will stop here.